make Evil ain't hard to find People can be wicked And be so unkind It's the opposite of good And a little bit worse than bad If you let it in your life Then friends are not
Okay. <laughs> this means get ready. This means go. Okay. All right. afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm sitting here today with Susan Hutton. Uh, welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. Um, Susan is here. Uh, she's Her book is on the vanishing of large creatures. And by way of introduction, I'm going to read your, your bio capsule on the back of the book. Um, very professional here. Excellent. <laughs> and also, um, thanks to Alex Sergey for being our fine engineer for the day. Thank you, Alex. I, I Captain um, Susan Hutton received her MFA from the University of Michigan and held a Wallace Stegner Fellowship in Poetry at Stanford University. Her poems have appeared in Poetry, Field, Plowshares, and many other places. I was looking online and other magazines, it says. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan with her husband and two children. And her husband would be Michael Byers, who is the, the second person I had the, the great <laughs> honor of interviewing on this radio show. Yep. So um, it's it's in the family. And then soon, maybe Hazel and John one day. Absolutely. I think that they think they're ready right now. Really? We should have invited them. Made it, you know, because it, be, it would be appropriate because there's lots, there's a family presence in your, your book. Absolutely. And so, and, um, and, and Susan's book was, uh, it came out this year, 2000. In case you guys are worried about what year it is, 2007 Carnegie Mellon Poetry Series. Um, so, Susan, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. And Thanks for asking me to come. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. This is where I get flustered now. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about your biography, if you don't mind. I thought we could um, start from the present and mm -hmm. just as a way of um, uh, getting to know you a little bit, maybe we can chart the places where you live because they, they come up in your poems. And so we're here in Ann Arbor. You mm -hmm. live here currently. Right. And, uh, and then you came from Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, we did. We made a full circle. It took us about um, 12 years to do it. But We've been here for not quite a year, and before we were here, we were in Pittsburgh, and we were there for three years. And before that, we were in Seattle for about five years, and then we were in San Francisco for two years, and then here for two years. Oh, okay. And then, yes. and do you mind if I'm nosy and ask um, where? Because I, I don't know um, where you grew up or like sort of your your real foundations of Susan Hutton. <laughs> 
I grew up in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit and outside of Detroit. And so Ann Arbor was always a mythical place for me. It was really? the cultural mecca. And um, and so it was really exciting when I got accepted to graduate school here. And when I came here, I was um, 24 when I came here. And so it was still really young and shiny and yes. new to me. And um, and it was familiar, too. And so it was it was a really great place for me. And was your family still based in Detroit at that time when you came? Because you came for the MFA program and in poetry. I did. Um, which makes sense with the book of poems. <laughs> <laughs> Susan's not pulling any punches right now. Maybe later. <laughs> um, my parents moved to um, Georgia um, a couple of months right after I started the MFA program. Oh, okay. So they were here, but I was the last one. My brother lives in Florida. I have one brother, and he lives in Florida, and they now live in Florida. Oh, right. So it was just me, and I had moved here from directly from Detroit. I was working at a, um, a publishing house in Detroit, and I still had a lot of friends who lived there. And when we were here, we went back every weekend. We went to the farmer's market or the museum, or we went to go see my friends. And so I still felt like I was very much attached to the city. And I don't have that experience now. The friends that I had don't live there anymore, or I've lost touch with them. But so you, it's. But have you have you taken the the kids back and said this is this is where I grew up? These are the this is the neighborhood or. No, I haven't done that. I grew up. I went to five elementary schools, so I grew up in lots of different places around, and so it would be sort of a long day. <laughs> to <laughs> right. in the and now we're going okay. to a museum, kids, because Hazel and John are pretty young, right? They so, are. Yeah. They're very small. Yes. Yeah, yeah they are. Five. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, well, let's see. Well, um, uh, so you're you're maybe a little more of the biography mm-hmm. here. Um, you were you're. This is such a great surprise that you're from Detroit. That was like I a am. gem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't because yeah. I, I had no idea actually where you were going to say you grew up because mm-hmm. it seems like you could be from anywhere that not that I don't, I don't know you very well Susan, right. so I but, <laughs> but no way I was but you're from Michigan <laughs> yeah Michigan. absolutely I've, I lived here since I was three and 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 um there your your family plays such a, a a large oh wait where 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 were you before when you were three we might as well get every <laughs> nitty-gritty <laughs> people are rolling their eyes as they're listening to the radio right now <laughs> yeah. um I was born in Buffalo New York in oh, December okay. very bleak um and mm. then we moved from one thriving uh, working town to Pittsburgh and then we moved to Detroit so we had all the highlights in the wow. early 70s exactly <laughs> the yeah the the big towns that were um, have had had their day well, exactly. not that I, I'm sure everyone's they're having renaissances of their own now I don't they mean are. to defame yeah. any place or <laughs> it actually makes them more romantic though especially for poets it's mm-hmm. sort of um, I'd almost think a point of pride that being from these towns mm-hmm. that um yeah, it was very much a part of my identity for a long time. And when I was here, I was working on a long poem about Marvin Gaye, who was just fundamental to my adolescence. How so? Um, I guess because I knew the house where he lived. It was kind of near the house where, where I lived. And there were so many um, experiences that I had that were really powerful communal experiences. Um, I was in this beautiful department store in Detroit called Hudson's when I first heard Midnight Love and I was riding up an escalator and everybody around me was dancing. You know, there's shopping bags. We're moving and oh, everybody was bonking into one another. And it just, it, it seemed like he just kind of made appearances. And I remember when he was killed that every radio station in town was playing him again and again and again. And you just couldn't tune in any place without without hearing his voice and how strange that was. It really struck me that somebody who was no longer alive was still accessible and was still familiar in these ways. And it it became one of those little niggling obsessions about, you know, what does it mean to have a recorded voice and what does it mean to have a video and how does that alter our experience of memory? And he just, for some reason, was somebody who was really important to me. 
And and just speaking about him, it makes me think of your poems. Many of your poems speaking about like this notion of time and that mm-hmm. that and in space is so vast, like everything you know is is potential. Is there's a, a probability for things, and that there's moments that are happening that will always um, like you, I think there's there's one line where you say somewhere um, I have been married to my husband for fifty years. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of time and and things that once they are they always will be it sounds like that was it struck you with Marvin Gaye Um, absolutely and it struck me with the whole city because it was untouched for most of the the, the era that I was growing up, that the, the riots were there in 67, and I could I knew where the dry cleaner was, where they had started, and it was still standing there, and the houses mm. that were around it were still standing there, and nobody had come by and plowed them over. or um, They were burnt shells, or they were... Uh, but you could see what happened. Yes. You could, there was an explanation for this vast emptiness. You could see it was this, and this, and this, and there was something really comforting and... Um, important to me about being able to trace back where it had come from because it's unsettling when things are are raised and and Mm -hmm. and then other things are built upon them and i guess Mm -hmm. that's sort of the what what uh, (laughs) i'm like holding on to things i like lean towards the amish and the luddites and that like i want the absolutely old ways but um yeah i went to high school in the suburbs i went to junior high in the suburbs and it was a completely different experience everything was new and it was farmland or it was just undeveloped fields and and it was anonymous. It was just that history, history was suddenly emerging right here. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what happened before. And it was a strange thing to kind of wander into place and feel no connection to it or feel like I couldn't locate where I was in the map of human experience. At the continuum of, yeah, definitely, which is very important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because in, in also in your, your book, it seems like I, I almost started to list all the names, like the, the historic figures and the, or from Maria Callas to Donald Duck to Henry Hudson, like mm-hmm. every Van Gogh, Mandelstam, you know, everyone. There's mm-hmm. So history is very important to you in a sense mm-hmm. of place. And, mm-hmm. and actually, when you were speaking about it, Susan, um, the, you even made that sound pretty, whereas sometimes I immediately have this image of the the strip malls everywhere <laughs> so that's our new new history right or right yeah i i'm very aware of the strip malls too and i try to look beyond them and you know see the little stand of trees but but it's it's not very attractive right. <laughs> and it's hard to really evoke some strong reaction to it except ugh. yeah yeah. Well, um, and even in, when you take a greyhound now too, it's you're probably going by these. It's, um, maybe there's a few small towns along the way because mm-hmm. the greyhound tends to hit those different towns. Sure have you ever taken the greyhound season? Of course I have. Yes. <laughs> What's your greyhound story? <laughs> I have a couple of them. I took a greyhound from Detroit to Iowa City. <laughs> Ooh, how many hours was that? Oh, I don't remember. It was it was many hours. I think maybe ten. Um, and, you know, it was unpleasant in the way that riding the Greyhound often is. But it was also, I loved taking that uh, impersonal drive through the landscape and, and seeing all of these things and knowing that there was somebody who was probably looking out at me. You know, the same thing that would happen at a train, that you knew what time the train would be coming through, and so you would look up and see it, and, you know, there were strange lights. and. It's really it's very interesting to me to see the the way something that you expect that kind of routine that kind of habit can structure your life and can seem so uh, novel to the person who's on the train or the person who is on the bus. They your your attention is trained on the landscape and you're noticing all of the all of the things there are to see, but. But you're having these these two experiences that are very different. Two people are having the same experience that are very different, and that's that's very interesting to me. That happened in the same time in the same place. And you're part of a movement too. If you're Absolutely. riding the right. bus or the yes. train, that's right. That's such an interesting experience. A movement through, and uh, and and trains are like that. The sound of the trains mm-hmm. can be very important mm-hmm. if you're living in a town like mm-hmm. we do, where the train comes through. Right. And exactly. You hear it, and you mm-hmm. you know what time. It's comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I I wish that I had 
um, some Simon and Garfunkel to play <laughs> on our next break. Like we could, I could just like sort of nonchalantly say, and now for the break, and Simon Garfunkel, I've gone to see America, would come on. But sadly, we don't have that song coming oh, up. I was um, really hoping. But, but we'll go to break now, and then we'll be back to talk more with Susan Hutton. you're just tuning in you're listening to the living writer show um today i'm speaking with poet susan hutton um and before we've been talking a little bit about susan's her her past her biography but now let's get right to a poem susan if you wouldn't mind absolutely um i'm going to read the the title poem from the book the book is called on the vanishing of large creatures and of course this poem is too on the vanishing of large creatures The Mayflower's passengers boarded without any inkling they would be revered. We imagined their journey with clean sails and blue sky, and the galley was probably filthy. Meriwether Lewis finally reached the Pacific after writing those dutiful descriptions of roots and rivers and new species, and just carved his name in a tree. Michelangelo, painting the Sistine Chapel, finished eventually and went home. But that fervor must be somewhere as when the music finishes and floats off into the air, as when Stevens walked to work writing poems in his head, and when he got there, let the private part of his mind keep going, as when Van Gogh kept painting himself in the asylum because he was the only model he had. Oh, the spring river moves around the ice, and the flows chime out their ruin, taking with them the shape of the winter banks and the stones sloping down toward the bed. In bed, the body's glorious grasp of its anatomy will move off with its pleasure, and the shapes of the bones, the muscles, the tendons, must all be relearned. No one remembers when it happened, but we were anchored to the earth, in the time it took to draw water, hand over hand, up from the well. The stone wall stood unassisted all those years, and the oceans were once filled with giant creatures the fishermen stripped from the sea. Thank you, Susan. My pleasure. Oh, that was wonderful. And you actually just, um, uh, you, you backed me up there. Thank you about the, <laughs> the names and the historic, um, the, the, the importance of history within your work. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My Completely pleasure. Completely unplanned. <laughs> um, and um, is that, was that something that was conscious, this idea of um, it, always like looking back to that the anchors of history or calling on um different figures from history is that a, a conscious decision that you're making in your work or is it some or something that you'll always do do you think i mean how would you know that <laughs> the questions no, i maybe ask it's working so far <laughs> um no i think a, a lot of times they come into a poem that i'm writing because they made a first appearance in my journal, which um, I'm pretty dedicated to. And um, most of the things that wind up in my journal are things that um, 
momentary epiphanies to the sorts of obsessive thoughts that I have or niggling worries that I have. And, um, and sometimes they stayed, and, and they would stay for a long time, and I would say, oh, yes, that's the way it is. I understand this. But sometimes they would change. But there was still something really valuable in looking back at them because I could remember the emotional quality, uh, the feeling, the quality of feeling that um, came from reading them and the way that when I would look back at them after I'd kept the journal for a long time, I would find different things that were overlaid that, that I might think one thing for a while and then I would say, oh, actually, no, it works this way. And then I would find something else. Oh, actually, it's like this. And, and I started putting index tabs when, um, <laughs> when I would find things in my journal that um, made me think that I was finally finding out a way to um, just find some sort of satisfactory answer to something that was bothering me. And they came to appear like natural metaphors in a way. Yes. And so... Um, Homegrown. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in the way that a metaphor works, you would say, it's this, it's this, it's this. And there was something that was really charged and um, and true in those things that, that I intu- intuited my way toward in that... Um, that kind of dictated the pace of the poem or that um, suggested a tone for the poem that was really embedded in the original discovery of whatever it was, you know, whatever I had written down, something that I thought or read or saw that made me feel like that was an important thing. And the new connect the the new discoveries of the connections between them, mm-hmm. and then so so the journal is that something that you say you you go to it and you you you're you're close to it? is that something that's like a part of your everyday practice? Is mm-hmm. it okay? It is. I don't. Um, when I was writing this book, my my children who are twins were one and two, and so I didn't really have a whole lot of time to be saying, oh, I think I'll write in my journal. Right. <laughs> Pop it open. And so it was often just sticky notes that I'd stuck on the telephone or on the cabinet, or and I would just kind of collect them at the end of the day and just transcribe them and say, oh, it's, it's this, or just stick them in the book. And that um, made me not forget what it was that I had thought about during right. the day. And it also had this really nice way of just inserting it. Uh, something that felt profound in a really mundane, you know, I'm changing another diaper, I'm making dinner, <laughs> we're now going for another walk. And, you know, just, they were nice anchors in my day. And um, and do you also, would you, earlier, do you read widely? Because you said that these, these mm-hmm. for example, the, his, the historic people that are popping up, are you um, reading philosophy and, and histories or what, or just every, mm-hmm. or the newspapers, what? The newspaper, I, I read a lot. I, I'm, I don't read a lot of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> it would be nice to sit here and say, yes, indeed, I read philosophy, but no, I don't. <laughs> and now <laughs> for our section on Kierkegaard. <laughs> don't ask me anything about that. I can't talk about it. We can do the Monty Python version of that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm up for that. Um, but yeah, I read um, the newspaper, and my husband is a really avid science reader, and every now and then I'll pick something up, and there will be something useful. It seems that. That, that science does, because you, mm-hmm. you have um, neutrinos and then mm-hmm. neutralinos. I think a different, like a slightly different, uh, I, I didn't know that, that w- there was a neutralino. I hope I'm pronouncing it mm-hmm. correctly. Um, maybe scientists aren't listening to us right now <laughs> and slapping hope. their forehead, right? <laughs> um, but, well... Um, well, well, maybe talking. Maybe we could talk a little bit about craft because mm-hmm. you started to touch on that when you were talking about um, forming. Like, there's there's a pace for the poem with mm-hmm. these accumulation of these connected um, metaphors. And um, when you're how how would you say you 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 shape your poems? Like, are you because it doesn't seem like you, do you, do you work in form? I guess I could start with a basic question. Do you ever work in form? Because I I don't. I don't see specific forms surfacing in the book. No, I, I mean, I have worked in form, and some of these poems started out as poems that were written in form because I felt like I needed that supportive structure. I see to begin with, but um, but they do have a sort of form that um, if I have an idea, if I've been able to craft an idea into some sort of verse, whatever the meter is of that verse, I am prisoner to, and even if I change every single word in that verse, that meter will stay the same. And, and that tends to be true with, um, with all of my 
my poems that I feel like there's there's a meter that accelerates or slows down or, or returns and there's a sort of refrain that feels like a um, just a natural pattern it's a nice companion it's you know it's kind of the rhythm of my obsessive thoughts that mm. these are this is the refrain <laughs> what happens with habit and what is recording like and yeah how does memory work I mean those are things that I just think about all the time and so they do have a, a sort of um, refrain just as a a presence in my life, but they also tend to have um, a rhythm to them, and, and that rhythm is something that definitely structures the way that I write, and it also structures, um, my journal often structures the way the poems are written and the way they evolve, and if there's a narrative, how the narrative is shaped, or if there are ideas that I'm trying to develop, you know, I might even just trace the way they happened organically to me in my head. And when you're saying refrain, Susan, is mm-hmm. that are you meaning even throughout the course of the book, the the book itself, where these ideas of memory will, um, or or um, or noting something about related to time, mm-hmm. um, or do you mean in the individual poem itself, or are you thinking across the the poems? I think as across the poems. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. And and the meter so and you say when you come up with one of like the the like this this first line mm-hmm. or so mm-hmm. um, whether it stays the first line or not then it, you're a prisoner to the meter that's it's a wonderful phrase I, yes then, absolutely <laughs> so you're 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 you have these constraints I do <laughs> yeah I mean they're totally self-imposed but but yeah they I mean sometimes my thoughts or my ideas feel so sprawling and um, uncontained and if I have something that I feel is a good good way to confine them I really it's it's quite a crutch for me until I feel like I know what I'm doing would you say this relates to unconventional logic sure (laughs) of course (laughs) I love that that phrase it's great I was reading some of the blurbs on the back of your book and I thought oh that's that's a good one that's that's almost seems like high praise you know unconventional logic yeah and it's also something about how your poems um they never end where they begin that's Mm -hmm. completely um sort of blasting off into this other um it's wonderful I love that. There's yeah, a, there's never you. a circling back that I can see in the poems. I don't think so. I mean, I mean there is some circling back. I definitely revisit some ideas again and again because I have I just haven't figured it out. Oh, but the okay, but not within the the poem itself, mm-hmm. but but in the obsession of the figuring things out. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's um did you when you said that you were the um that Hazel and John were were, were one and two when you were writing this book mm-hmm. so what happened to the poems when you were um, from from your experience here in, in the MFA program are they po- poems that th- a few appear in the book I'm, I'm just curious because sometimes mm-hmm. people say you know well you know try very hard with your thesis but n- none of them will ever appear again <laughs> and you kind of think really that's <laughs> <laughs> well that was what happened with me I, I was working on this this long poem that I was working yes. on when I was here and um, I tried really hard, but I didn't know how to end it. I didn't. I didn't have the skill to end it, and I didn't have the the technical facility to end it. And so I learned a lot from it, and it was just so useful. And it was just a great thing for me to sit down with it every day and face the same difficulty that I'd faced the day before, and it was still there. And and uh, I'm so glad that I did it, but. I, it, it's not publishable. And this is the Marvin Gaye <laughs> poem. It is. Well, well, do you think it could be become something else? Because you you also are an essayist. Mm-hmm. You write. I've seen uh, an essay of yours on the Poetry Foundation's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that later as sure. well. Um, You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Well, you were, till I pushed the wrong button. Hey, come on now. Go back to playing. Doubt. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's. Um, did you when you said that you were the um, that Hazel and John were 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 one and two when you were writing this book? Mm-hmm. So what happened to the poems when you were um, from from your experience here in in the MFA program? Are they? Po- poems that a few appear in the book I'm, I'm just curious because sometimes mm. people say 
you know, well, you know, try very hard with your thesis, but none of them will ever appear again. And you kind of think, really? That's <laughs> well, that was what happened with me. I, I was working on this, this long poem that I was working yes. on when I was here. And um, I tried really hard, but I didn't know how to end it. I didn't, I didn't have the skill to end it, and I didn't have the, the technical facility to end it. And so I learned a lot from it, and it was just so useful, and it was just a great thing for me to sit down with it every day and face the same difficulty that I'd faced the day before, and it was still there. And, and uh, I'm so glad that I did it, but I, it, it's not publishable. And this is the Marvin Gaye <laughs> poem. It is. Well, well, do you think it could be become something else? Because you you also are an essayist. You mm-hmm. write. I've seen uh, an essay of yours on the Poetry Foundation's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that later as sure. well. Um, but do, do you think this um, can Marvin Gaye um, become an essay or or other? Or do you feel like your your writing work really is going to be in the realm of poems and and maybe some essays? But the essays tend to be just ways that I earn money. I mean, I love doing yes. it, and it's it's great. But it's not. I mean, I've done all sorts of things that that I've loved and that have been really interesting to earn money. But it's not. They're not really writing to me. I worked at Microsoft for a while, and that oh, was okay. just... The Seattle years. Exactly, the Seattle years. And I wrote advertising copy, and I did, you know, all sorts of crazy things that were, you know, really useful to me, because especially at that point, I had been in school for four years. I'd been here at getting my MFA, and then I'd been at Stanford, and there was no break in between. And, you know, in addition to the pragmatic, <laughs> I needed to earn some money, um... It was just really good for me to go back out into the world where everybody's primary focus wasn't poetry. And it helped me both to step away from the pobiz and the, you know, the issue of who's getting a prize and who's chosen a prize and where your poems are appearing and do you have a book yet to make me think, you know, what is it that I really like about this? Because it didn't have a presence in my daily life at Microsoft at all. Nobody read poetry. And so... And it could be yours again in a yeah. new way that wasn't just Absolutely. surrounding you. And Because mm-hmm. sometimes it can be somewhat stifling. Well, well, <laughs> I'm always... I work in these really <laughs> cheerful notes just to punctuate the show. I think we'll go to a break now. You're listening, everyone, to Susan Hutton on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today we have Susan Hutton here in the studio with us, um, reading from her book of poems on the vanishing of large creatures. Uh, Susan, will you, will you read another? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a poem called Therefore. We know how Houdini, bound in a sack and stowed inside a locked trunk, exchanged places with his wife who stood waiting behind the screen, but we'll never know how they did it so fast. My neighbor's old dog barks at nothing all day, 
Birds flit invisibly among the trees and sing for a few hours as the sun comes up. We love the planners' immaculate paths curving through the old parks, even as we refuse them and wear away our own. The line of desire, the architects call this. It is the world, and is also not. When passing a field of corn on the freeway, the eye searches for the ends of the rows. When seeing that painting of enormous sky, the heart sinks to turn and see beyond the gallery's smudged window. We can know only so much of the world. The pumping sound of the barber's chair rising in my grandfather's shop. The dice clicking from the alley, outside, off the curb. But also, the smell of the valley's alfalfa blowing in on late afternoons and settling on the stranger's hair scattered across the floor. Thank you. It makes so much sense now with um, uh, that you mentioned Houdini, uh, you coming from Detroit, because mm-hmm. one, one of his last shows was in Detroit, That's wasn't right. it? The ma- yes. m- Magic Stick or the Majestic? or I, Yeah, or, it was on uh, Halloween. Yeah. Yes, right. that's a wonderful connection, I isn't know. it? It's just great. Houdini. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's always coming through. <laughs> and then, and your grandfather's barber shop mm-hmm. and the dice against the curb that seems, and I can um, picture that all the all the more. Family has such a presence in your in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're referencing them and bringing them in, and and your friends, like the um, people you love. You have. Um, more not that other poets you know poets do do this <laughs> but it's like yours it's, it seems to be a, a, such a force mm-hmm. and um and a touchstone within within your poems yeah i think and, that's right and your great aunt too i wondered about mm-hmm. her because it seems like you have very a tender way she appears in a couple of poems but she feels seems to be um so what's my question about family <laughs> Well, I don't know. My uh, grandfather had, uh, he's one of eight siblings, and so I had a bunch of great aunts, and they were all just so lovely to me and so loving. My parents both grew up in West Virginia in these very small towns, and we would go back and visit them pretty often. And my parents were the only ones who left these towns, and so it was an enormous family with uncles and aunts and cousins, and um, so it was a a really significant experience for me to go back and and I was just I was really lucky that they were they they just they adored me and they were very kind to me and so they definitely are a part of the way um I think of myself and a part of my my experience and um and so it it also seems as if it's a way of um you have they can always be in the world now even mm-hmm. if they're they're older and if if um if they cuz grandparents um are often those are the f- first people you you lose and mm-hmm. um there's there's also in this book um loss uh, mm-hmm. f- figures into it um mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was wondering if if you could talk about is it the, the loss comes into it because it's it's um it's something that you were trying to come to terms with in your your own life like in, it was in that same period mm-hmm. um so it was just a way i guess um is there a way you could talk about like the include inclusion of loss like was it um it's probably not something that's conscious it's probably something that just comes into the poems um there's a wonderful moment where you're you're talking about everything being one way and then there's a phone call and you're so happy to hear from the person but mm-hmm. then it's the news and and nothing will be the same again i think it's a shot through with happiness is that's that right. the poem mm-hmm. um, yeah that's right um yeah i had a, a very close friend who killed himself um and Again, it happened when my children were quite small. They were they were two, um, and in a way, a lot of the poems that are about him are about him because when I was writing, it was really the only time that I had to think about it, to really devote my my attention to it and um, my emotions to it. Um, and so it was I was sitting alone at my desk and and that was what I thought about because the rest of my day was structured with with taking care of my kids and the things that I would do with them um and so partly I think that's why I wrote about it but also because it, it was it was an enormous just an enormous loss 
for me and such a sad thing and and it was something that was so unexpected that I didn't quite know how to position it in my head along with everything else and um, I guess you know I don't look at poetry so much as something that gives meaning to to something that or explains something in a way but but there was something I mean I'm saying it from a distance it wasn't the way it felt when I was writing it but it just it, it was one part of the realm of human experience that it was that these are the ways that we occupy the world and we experience them through sense and through feeling and through thought and you know I guess it was also just about consciousness that you know the privilege of consciousness of being alive and this is what it means to be a human on the earth and it just uh, you know there was the, the personal loss of having this person who I loved not not being in my life anymore but also the just intellectual question of you know how how could you do this yes <laughs> how, you know you have this you know if, if if you abide by Darwin's ideas, you know, we struggled all this time right. to become alive and we're only here for such a short time. And how, how, how could you turn away from that? And, and you actually even mentioned that in your poem, you, you sort of bend time in one of the poems where, um, oh, I, f I forget what the title of that one, but when, when you say Paul, um, s kind of teases you about mm -hmm. your cans of tomato soup mm -hmm. for dinner. And he said, you only have so many meals. Mm -hmm. And I think you ask, um, then at that time when he said that those years ago, right. did he have any idea about right. the number? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he had a hard time with depression and it was something that was, you know, present for him in the, in the entire time that I knew him, all of the years that I knew him. So, yeah, I mean, of course, there were things that I thought about later and thought, was he telling me this? Was this an, an encoded message that I didn't pick up? Was this, you know, where did this come from? You know, probably why didn't I see it coming? But also just what what could he have been feeling? What was this? Right. I guess it's an intense awareness of time. And Absolutely. sometimes that makes us um, bring an intensity to different experiences and time with people, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, well, well, there's... Um, Another poem, I think, of yours that's called "On On Being Wrong," mm -hmm. I believe, and it ends with this um, this image of you with your grandfather on a pier. I think uh, where, um, unless I'm getting this no, terribly right. wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. oh, you got it. <laughs> and um, the, there's a very old men fishermen, and mm -hmm. they they end up pulling, they catch a, a turtle, mm -hmm. and it's tangled and it's snapping, it's huge, mm -hmm. and and then they end up putting a bucket on its head and just throwing it back in. Mm -hmm. I just think that's um, that, that's an amazing. Um, it's it's this amazing story at the end of a longer poem. I don't know if you were planning on. You can't possibly read it now. I've ruined <laughs> it. I've taken I've taken that one away. I hope that wasn't the next one you were planning to read. Um, but but why why don't you please give us another poem instead sure. of me paraphrasing them? Um, I'm going to read a poem called In Fact, which was um, the poem in which the tomato soup makes it, its appearance. In fact, the first time I see my daughter, yes. The moment later when I first see my son, precisely. The two weeks they are apart in the hospital. The day they both come home, of course. Mason jars of peaches on the cellar shelf. The late February rainstorm and then the smell, undoubtedly. The first mornings we hear the birds come back. The time between the touch and its arrival in the brain, certainly. The years when Norgay and Hillary refused to say which of them had reached the summit first, yes. The distracted way the girl smooths her skirt, exactly. That mathematically, there are no beginnings or endings. That is just it. The way water clouds when it cools. After ten years, Michael lowers himself tenderly over my body and says, we have so many years left. Visiting Michelle that winter, Paul teasing me about my canned tomato soup. You only get to eat so many meals. Remembering that afternoon 15 years later, wondering if he was thinking of killing himself even then. Thank you, Susan. That's lovely. It's a lovely um, 
the elegy for Paul as, as well, so that he... Um, well, on a completely different note, <laughs> yes. I have a goofy question for you before sure. we go to break. Uh, <laughs> um, it's also from that poem on being wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's, a, I, I didn't write down the, the, the line before this, but it's something about ina- our, our, our human inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and you write the dawn's early light. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask if that was, um, uh, is, is that like the, the, the misunderstanding 